Husky fans! This is Max Cerullo, and you are listening to another episode of Yes UConn, the podcast where we dive deep into the greatest UConn basketball games ever played. And uh, guys, we're gonna keep it real, uh, real recent this time. Um, you know, over the course of this show, I think the the most recent game we'd covered before today was from 2014, and uh, unfortunately, there have only been a handful of really good rewatchable UConn games since. But um, yeah, we're we're gonna go with. Uh, this year, uh, the the most basically the last meaningful game UConn played. Uh, we're doing senior night of this past season, uh, Christian Vital's big sendoff, and uh, you know this is a really special game because I think like most of you guys can all agree, this was a moment where we really felt like you know UConn basketball. We've been through some real crap the last couple of years, but now you know. This, this is an opportunity to make a real big statement in a really big stage. And the team came through and the crowd came through. It was an awesome game to watch, an awesome game to experience and to rewatch again. And, you know, obviously, you know, the, the team didn't really get a chance to carry that momentum into the postseason. You know, coronavirus, of course, uh, is remaining, <laughs> remaining an issue to this day four months later. But, you know, for that night in early March, man, we, we really had something special. Daniel Connolly from the Yukon blog will be joining me today. Uh, he was in the building that day. Uh, it was his senior year. So he's a recent graduate. Uh, hard to imagine a, a worse timing as far as uh, being a student at Yukon, but you know, had a chance to experience a, a really special game and uh, had a great conversation about it. So um, yeah, so anyway, we'll, we'll just hop right to it. And uh, yeah, just a uh, you know, big thanks to Daniel for coming on and uh, you know, hope you guys enjoy. Uh, so yeah, let's, uh, let's do this. Right, Daniel Connolly joins the show today. Daniel, thanks so much for coming on. How's it going? Thanks for having me. I'm doing good. Nice hot day in the summer. Not much to complain about. Yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah, so uh, you know, Daniel is a recent uh, UConn graduate and uh, one of the editors at the UConn blog, doing a really good job there. Uh, Dan, I gotta say, um, you deserved so much better than what you got from UConn sports these past couple of years. Uh, so, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, done a great job, you know, doing the, you know, coverage for everything you've been doing. So I guess just to, to start off, I mean, you know, how, you know how, despite everything that I guess uh, went wrong, how uh, how would you sum up your, your UConn career as a fan and as a student? Yeah. Yeah. So I'd, <laughs> I'd be lying if I wasn't a little upset about the deal I was dealt with the sports at the very least, because... Uh, I've been going to men's basketball games since I was a baby. My parents have had season tickets my whole life. So going to UConn was the only school that I really wanted to go to. Like I applied to three others, two of which I would have even possibly considered going to, but they were all just backups for going to UConn. So I was really excited to finally get to be in the student section and get to go to games and all that. And then my first game as a student was them losing to Wagner. And then my second game as a student was them losing to Northeastern. And that really kind of set set the stage for how my career was going to go at UConn. And it sucked because team never made an NCAA tournament. They were god-awful my first two years. Um, at least I got Dan Hurley the last two years. And this past year was really fun, even if there wasn't any NCAA tournament. But it wasn't even just men's basketball. I mean, I cover the women's basketball team for the blog, and they never won a national championship so i'm like part of the second class i think since 1995 to not see them win a national title 
the soccer team, which has made the NCAA tournament pretty much every year since 2000, missed it three out of my four years. So that was fun. Women's soccer team, who used to be one of the best teams in the country, was great my freshman year. Really fun to cover them. And then they fell apart. So, yeah, it, it wasn't great. And then obviously having the last half of senior year canceled due to coronavirus was really just the cherry on top of all of that. Yeah. I mean, that's just like really just like Mur- like some real Murphy's law stuff going on there. <laughs> Cause like you finally, this year's team, like, you know, they weren't great. You know, they certainly weren't going to contend for a national championship, but they were like some, they were a team you could really root for. And, you know, they did the thing that you always just, you, you just wanted to see and they got better as the year went along. So, you know, we don't know what would have happened in the postseason. I think most of us agree they would have at least contended for the American Conference Championship. And, you know, who knows what could have happened, whether it was, you know, whether they win or they make the NCAAs or maybe they lose in, I don't know, like the semis or the finals and, and you know, wind up in the NIT. I think at the very least they would have made it there. So, you know, it could have been an interesting couple of weeks there. But, you know, at the very least, we did get this game, uh, the game we're going to talk about, the uh, senior night game against Houston. Um I think this this is without a doubt the best UConn basketball game of uh, the last four years. I, I think I don't think that's really even a question. And you know this is certainly I think probably the the first time I can recall in a while where UConn played like a real Big East game. You know, and you know what I mean by that. Obviously, with the crowd and the the stakes, and you know a good opponent, even if it you know Houston's not a Big East team. So, you know, as a, you know, this was kind of the culmination of your basketball career as a student. What what was it like to, to be a part of this uh, atmosphere and to get to experience this game? Yeah, I'm definitely going to agree on it being the best game in my four years because the Florida game earlier in the season, like, blew everything off the table. And then the Houston game just topped it. So it was it was a really interesting night because it was senior night. So obviously it's about Christian Vital and Mamadou Diar and Altari Gilbert and the other seniors that they're honoring. But just from having gone to a million games as a student, soccer, basketball, all that, um, I had a pretty close friend group of people that would go to games together that um, I had had for pretty much all four years. So it was the last time we were all going to get to go to a game at Gamble together and I just remember getting to the game early, getting to stand outside in the cold like one last time and just the whole process of running into Gamble when the door is open, saving the seats and then just hanging out for an hour and a half with all my friends like one last time in Gamble. So there was definitely that aspect of it, at least personally. And then just from a basketball perspective, it's like, all right, well, this is hopefully cv's last game in gamble and if there's any dude in program history that deserves to go out with a win on senior night against a ranked team it's christian vital so there's definitely that part of it too so i just remember it being such a charged atmosphere from the beginning like i think dan hurley walked out like before the game and the student section just like exploded so it was one of those games where the students were ready to go from even before the opening tip. So you knew it was going to be a fun game. Oh man, absolutely. I mean, and you guys like, you know, it's just so different for you guys. Cause you know, I've often talked on the podcast about how, you know, 
frankly, how blessed I was. I mean, I, I went to UConn from, from 08 to 2012, which was a, you know, a pretty epic stretch for UConn sports. And, you know, I remember a handful of games like that where you're just like, oh, man, like this is going to be a special night. So, you know, for you guys to have that was really it must have almost made it that much better because you, you, you know, you grew up watching UConn basketball and you've probably been in Gamble plenty of times as a kid. So to actually get to experience that at least once yourself, you know, and then have that pay off like they won. And it was a really, really fun game, too. Um, I mean, I can't even imagine just, just such a different experience. Um, just to, obviously, we'll talk about the game in depth, but just a big picture. What do you recall about the atmosphere in Gamble once the ball tipped? It was just one of those games at Gamble where, like, when anything happened, the crowd was going nuts. Like, having been through some really bad years in the student section, like, there were games where you couldn't even get the students, like, five over from you to start doing the chants, like, as the play's going on. And, like, there was nothing to cheer about. So it was, like, more or less just silence and gamble for the entire game. So, like, the students were ready to go for this one. We all knew, like, this was it for CV and that, like, if you're not going to go nuts for this game, then you're not going to go nuts for any game. A ranked team in Gamble to close out the season, like, you can't get any better than that. It's just the ultimate game at Gamble, even if it's not in the Big East. So, um, yeah, it was it was just electric. Like, that word gets thrown around a lot for a lot of games, but... Gamble's just such a special place when it gets going and the whole crowd is getting into it. I just remember there being a couple plays where, like, not to jump ahead, but like Isaiah Whaley's dunk at the end where the entire crowd is just going nuts and you feel like the roof's going to cave in because there's so much noise. And every single person from the students to the younger kids to the old people are on their feet just losing their minds over it. it like, that's just the total sense of what a great college basketball atmosphere is and hopefully that's going to be what we see a lot more now that we're back in the Big East. Oh absolutely well there'll be more opportunities because that was like the great thing about the old Big East is you know you know back then it was 16 teams and usually at least 11 of them were really good so you know Houston Look, the, we, we love to hate on the American Conference, but Houston was legit. Like, uh, Kelvin Sampson, you know, for, you know, despite his, some of his, uh, you know, past NCAA, uh, you know, run-ins with the, the rules and stuff, dude's a great coach, and his program has been excellent for a while. And, I mean, UConn's gotten their asses kicked by Houston a couple times these past few years. Oh, God, Like, yeah. some really, some of their worst games ever, really. So, you know, I guess it's, like, kind of just kind of set the stage, so... You know, coming in, UConn has endured three consecutive losing seasons, you know, which is the by far the worst stretch in UConn basketball history since Jim Calhoun took over in the mid 80s. You know, so that I mean, that's, you know, I you know, I just turned 30. So like my entire life, you know, I've never seen anything like that. You, you certainly haven't, um, you know, even people a little bit older than me. You know, it's pretty much UConn's been what it's been. And this is like, you know, we've been wondering, like, is it going to ever come back or is this just is it over? And there was a point early this season where maybe we were really thinking like, oh my God, like what's what's going to happen? Uh, that that loss against St. Joseph's was really, really tough. You know, it's just like after that game, you're like, geez, like, wow, like what what what's we all felt so good about this season. And then that happens. You get the Florida win that kind of flips it. And you're like, OK, maybe we're, we're going to be OK. And then just 
loss after loss and after loss against good teams that they should have won. You know, you have the Xavier loss, the Indiana game, Wichita State, Villanova, Houston, Tulsa. They should have won all those games, and they somehow lost them all. And, um, you know, it's not really until they finally kind of flip things against uh, Tulsa on the road where they sort of figure out how to win. Um, but, you know, this game, this game by now we've seen like, okay, they're, they're making progress. They're winning. They're beating good teams. They beat Cincinnati and Memphis, which were two games they absolutely had to win. And now here you have Houston, uh, you know, Christian Vitale's final home game and the chance to really make something, you know, if you win this game, it's anything's possible. If you lose, it's like, okay, really? I don't know what's going to happen next, you know? Um, so just, uh, you know, do you, I guess I'm trying to think what the question is. Just what what do you think? At what point do you think you realize like this team actually could be something and wasn't just destined to be like, you know, the what would have been type of thing? I don't know if I can remember a specific point, but the Cincinnati game really, really stands out in my mind. I think it was the game before at Gamble, uh, the, the previous game at Gamble, or maybe it was earlier in the year. Yeah, it was earlier in the year. Uh, it went to overtime, and I just remember that Jaron Cumberland had like four different chances to win it at, at the end of the game with a final shot, and he missed every single one of them. And that was just one of those moments where it was like, all right, past UConn teams, he hits every single one of those shots. And UConn like, probably doesn't even put up that much of a defensive effort against it. And then we go down the court, taking an ill-advised shot, it bounces out, and we lose. That's just the way all close games had gone for the last four years. So that game, you could see there was still a fight in the team, even though they lost, I think, only Polly at that point. I think a cook was still playing. But you could see there was that fight left in the team and that they weren't going to give up just because it was a close game as they had a few years ago. So that really seemed to be a turning point for me where – this team went from, all right, they're scrappy and can hang with other teams where, okay, they can actually play with good teams and figure out how to beat them. So then by beating Houston, not handily, but comfortably, where it wasn't coming down to the last possession, at that point, it kind of seemed to me like, all right, this team's figured out how to win. And even though they don't have a cook, they don't have Polly, they're shorthanded. But I mean, Book Knight was playing phenomenal at that point. He wasn't playing like a freshman anymore i think you were gonna have to drag cv's dead body off a court to try and beat uconn and just the way isaiah whaley was playing at the end of the year was unbelievable the way he came out of nowhere so i mean this is probably just the fan in me coming out but i just don't see how christian vital was gonna let them lose a game before they got to the ncaa tournament you just talk about a kid who wants it more than everyone else i he would have done everything to get the team to the NCAA tournament and just as you mentioned they played all these teams close and were just losing with mistakes at the end or just dumb plays that they really should have won so it seemed like they had finally turned that corner and figured out how to win and not make those mistakes and if they were playing the way they were going into the tournament I really think they would have been a tough tough out oh absolutely and like I think what this team was so likable where in the past, like, you know, the past teams, they just, they didn't fight. They kind of gave up. They clearly weren't talented enough and they obviously knew it. Whereas this team, they weren't really talented enough anyways, but they somehow figured it out at the end. Like, you know, you, how are you going to root against Christian Vital, who 
I mean, you remember his his recruiting class. He was like kind of an afterthought. And pretty much right away, he wound up being the best guy. Like it didn't take long at all for all of us to be like, oh, actually, Christian Vital is the best player in this recruiting class. And it's actually not close. Like, so he clearly like yeah. you know, made something of himself. He winds up with over 1,700 career points. You know, Whaley, like, you know, Whaley, like what a what a what a turnaround for him. I mean, you know. He like is getting like harassed on social media, being like, "Yo, you should transfer because you're bad." And then like, you know, the team kind of like calls people out, and then fans are like, "No, actually, those guys are jerks. Like, you gotta stay. We love you." And then next thing you know, yeah. he like, you know, a cook goes down, and Whaley just transforms into this fantastic four. Like he he was great the last like you know couple months of the season. You know, Book Knight's obviously a future NBA player, so it's you know just his presence is like just proof enough. It's like, oh wow, things are going to turn around soon because like, look at the just look at this guy. He's doing things we haven't seen in years, and uh, you know, just everybody like you know, it seems like everybody really kind of stepped up and showed that they kind of deserve to be you know deserve the respect and deserve to be you know basically deserve to be treated like a UConn basketball team again. You know, the fans responded clearly. Yeah, yeah, I mean. Well, is was just like, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. Like he did not play at all last year. He was injured, but he never even saw the court. And then this year, like he still wasn't even playing that much, but then all of a sudden a cook goes down and he looked like not even like biased, like by his stats, he suddenly turned into one of the best bigs in the country. Like just, I, I don't know. I think that's just the ultimate uh, sign that Dan Hurley's the guy because how can someone go from barely playing to just being phenomenal for the team? It was just, I, I think that was probably one of the most fun things to follow last season was Hurley, uh, was Whaley's turnaround. Yeah. Him not winning conference most improved player was an outrage. I don't, yeah. I really don't understand how that, how, how that, you know, I don't even remember who won the award. I just remember it being absolutely like infuriating. Um, but yeah, Whaley good in this game. Also, uh, Christian Vitell is, I mean, I don't know if this was the best game he ever played at UConn, but it was certainly it was certainly up there. I mean, he was he was great. Uh, so I guess you want to just uh, dive in and kind of break down the kind of how how things played out. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So first half, um, you know, the thing that struck me immediately, the crowd was absolutely into it. You know, to a degree I hadn't seen in a while. Um, Houston, um, really good in the first two minutes. They take an early five to nothing lead, and you know, it's like that's kind of one of those moments where you're like, Hmm, you know, okay. UConn can either respond or they cannot, And then we'll just see what happens. And, uh, it's pretty clear what happened like within, like it didn't take very long to figure out how it was going to go. UConn just absolutely just, just demolishes them over the next like four or five minutes. Uh, they go on a 16 to nothing run and they're just scoring in every way you can. You have Carlton getting a, you know, an and one off a Whaley dunk attempt. Vital hits a three. Gilbert, you know, draws a foul, hits a couple free throws. The defense is crazy. You know, Houston's not getting any good looks. They're like taking, they're chucking up bad shots at the late in the shot clock. And then Book Knight does this wild Euro step and finger roll and transition. And, uh, you know, just kind of keeps piling on from there. I was honestly at that point, like, oh my God, like, is UConn going to do to Houston what Houston's done to them all this time? Like, (laughs) I was like, I allowed myself the chance to think like, maybe this is just going to be a blowout. We haven't seen one of these in a while either. Yeah. Well, my, I vividly remember them going down five, nothing early on and just turning to a friend and going, this is just like classic Yukon since we've been here, we have this awesome crowd and they're going to like take their own crowd out of it within the first two minutes. 
And then that run comes and it's like, okay, well, this probably isn't like the same UConn teams that we've seen. So maybe I should just stop talking. And yeah, th- that hurt that book night Euro step. I just remember everyone like just turning and looking at each other like, oh my God, did he just do that? Like that was just like, if the crowd wasn't at a fever pitch before the game, that run just took it into the stratosphere. I mean, in terms of just like, some of the most fun moments I've had at UConn was that stretch right there, just how well they were playing, how dominant it was. Like you said, Houston wasn't getting anything. And like, it wasn't like they were just missing shots. Like UConn just wasn't even allowing them to get shots. It was just such a total beatdown for that time. And then you knew Houston was going to come back, but I just remember after that stretch, like never actually being worried about the game. Like, I just remember the entire time being like, it's inevitable that UConn's going to win this game, no matter what the score says right now. Like, it's just going to come out. And that feeling, like, came about during that stretch. I mean, UConn really earned that trust, huh? Like, there's no way you would have reacted that way. Like, really, and I, don't, I can't I can't really imagine even, like, three games earlier, you would ever have that thought against a team as good as Houston. Because, like... As far as American Conference teams go, Houston was really the only one that you really could actually look at and be like, that's a really good team. Whereas, you know, you know, Cincinnati and Memphis were kind of like, that's a that's a pretty good team who UConn probably, you know, could lose to. But, you know, you kind of have that hesitation, you know, to feel that confident about Houston really says a lot about what UConn had been able to do and just how good they played that stretch. I mean, that was nuts. Like it was they literally played a perfect game for six minutes. Yeah, well. Uh, I do have to admit that like this point in the year, my schedule was like insane. I was getting up for 8 a.m.s and then I had all morning classes and then I was a practice player on the women's soccer team. So then I was going to that and then I was going back to my house and then showering and eating lunch and then going to class and finishing class and doing homework and blog work. So I wasn't like super up to date on like who Houston was as a team. So like midway through the second quarter, I turned to someone and I went, or the second half, I went, is Houston ranked? And they're like, yeah, they're number 21. I'm like, when was the last time we beat a ranked team? And they're like, I don't know, like 2016. It's like, oh, crap. Okay, <laughs> so we're actually going to do this. Like, So I think that maybe contributed to my confidence a little bit, just kind of being out of the loop a little bit. But even still, like after I learned that, I, I just remember watching the game and thinking, like, well, this entire time – I haven't known that Houston's a ranked team and UConn has been significantly better than the ranked team this entire time. So I, what does that say something about Houston or does that say something about, about UConn? I think it says something, it says a lot about both. And, and by the way, uh, right. the last time UConn had beaten a ranked team was the Florida game earlier that year. I don't, but yeah, uh, but you know, either way, not a common occurrence, you know, and they, they like lost like their next four games against ranked teams the rest of the year <laughs> before that. Um, but yeah, no, but I mean, either, either way, I mean, you know, this, uh, Houston, it winds up being over six minutes without a basket. Uh, UConn's up 16 to five at the under 12. And then, you know, Houston, obviously they, they make a run. They go, uh, they go on an eight to nothing run. They cut it to a three point game. Uh, and then it's, it's a little bit back and forth for a bit. UConn, uh, uh, Al hits a three to put UConn back up by seven. And then, um, then yeah, actually, yeah, that's the moment where it really flips. Uh, so UConn's winning twenty-seven to twenty with uh, four forty-five to play, 
And then Houston ends up finishing the half on a 17 to three run, which it didn't feel like they were really on a run until the last like two possessions where, you know, they hit a two with like, you know, a few seconds left and then they get a three at the buzzer. And then you're like, what just happened? Like you, the whole time you felt like UConn's in complete control. And then somehow they go into halftime, they're down 30, uh, 37 to 30. And, you know, it was hard to really put a finger on exactly what happened. It just kind of felt like Houston started making shots and, you know, just like that, it's just like, oh, okay, well, that that happened, I guess. Uh, do you recall how you felt at halftime, especially after uh, Grimes made that three at the buzzer? Yeah, I still didn't feel, like, super worried. Like, when I was going back last night and going through stuff from the game, like, I was surprised that they were down seven at the half. Like, I feel like I would have had a better memory of being like, oh, crap, this isn't good. But I think I just remember being like, well, like, Houston's had one good stretch this entire game. UConn's been in control pretty much the whole time, so I'm I'm not going to panic because if UConn keeps playing like they did in the first half, even though they're down seven, they're going to win this game. Like, nothing Houston has done this entire game up until the last few minutes has made me think that they're capable of winning this game compared to UConn, just because, as you said, UConn was so in control the entire time. We had Christian Vital and they didn't, and just the way that UConn was winning the game, it wasn't just that they were shooting a million threes and making them, or it wasn't just that their defense wasn't giving Houston anything until that last few minutes. It was that they were just playing such a strong overall game and getting contributions from everyone. And Hurley could just rotate the bench and it didn't really matter who was in. They were playing well that I just felt that if UConn can continue playing like it did in the first half, we're going to be fine. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely didn't feel too worried. It was more just like kind of like a, huh, well, okay. Kind of thing, you know, yeah. but at the same time I was like, okay, well, you know what? UConn's played so well that like, I guess we just got to give them a chance. You know, obviously if Houston comes out and goes on a 10, nothing run to start the second half, then, you know, we have problems, but obviously that, right. th- that didn't happen. Um, you know, UConn, you know, the first like minute or two was a little bit back and forth. And then book night, so if this is emblematic of just like what UConn had become, Book Knight converts a four-point play out of this really preposterous three-pointer that bounces like 12 feet in the air and just falls straight through Swish, you know, like, you know, two seconds after, you know, everybody's just like, oh, yeah, you know, kind of one of those kind of plays. <laughs> and that, that ends up, you know, that I think that, uh, yeah, that made it a three-point game again. It was 39-36 after he hits the free throw. And, you know, at that, at that point, I was like, oh, they're going to be fine. I mean, if... if Book Knight's going to be converting stupid four-point plays like that, then clearly, you know, they have luck on their side for once, you know. Finally, after so many crappy losses, they finally have some things starting to go their way. Yeah, that play, I I don't know if you're a Celtics fan, but that play reminded me of Paul Pierce's free throw. I think it was in, like, the 2008 finals. He shot it, and it bounced and, like, went straight up in the air and then came back down just like that. That play reminded me of that, but... I, I remember vividly the ball went up in the air and Gamble just went silent and all of us are just sitting there waiting to see what the ball is going to do. And then it comes back down. Like everyone goes nuts. That was just such an awesome play that, yeah, like you said, it's like, all right, if we're making these shots, I think we're going to be in pretty good shape because the last three years, every team had made those shots against us. So if they're finally going to start to fall for us now, that's a good sign. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And for the record, I am a Celtics fan, so I appreciate that reference because I do remember that free throw. And I remember thinking at the time, like, geez, like, (laughs) like, what are the chances of that? Um, 
yeah. So anyway, you know, UConn, they, uh, so, you know, uh, Altariq draws a charge on, uh, Giroux from Houston. That's his fourth foul. So now, you know, on one hand, it's like, okay, so clearly they've got the momentum again. And now Houston's starting to have some foul trouble. And, uh, I think Christian Vettel hit a three on the next possession to tie it up. And, um, you know, I think that was the moment where I was like, okay, like it's, it's only a matter of time. Um, the next four minutes or so were ugly, though, like not because they played bad. There's just a lot of fouls on both ends. I remember when I was rewatching the game, I was constantly hitting like fast forward 30 seconds, fast forward 30 seconds. Like, OK, let's get back to the basketball. So it got a little ugly. And then Sidney Wilson with a gigantic chase down block leads to a uh, Alteric uh, layup on the other end. You know, that kind of sends UConn. Uh, they're up two again going into the under 12. And then that's sort of, you know, UConn takes over the next like seven or eight minutes is just all UConn um Sidney Wilson obviously you know he's you know he's transferred out of UConn and never really quite worked out but plays like that were just like that's like why you liked having him around because you knew that once or twice a a game or maybe like a couple times a season he was just going to come up with something just so preposterous that's like okay that's why we have him around like Sydney, what did you, do I I mean that play was amazing what what do you recall about that and uh you know Sydney's performance overall so for what's Sydney a sophomore? So for the last two years, uh, I had a running joke with my friends that I went to games with that Sydney Wilson doesn't do anything, but he averages one gigantic block and one gigantic dunk per game. Like one, at least one of those two things is guaranteed to happen every single game. So I remember Houston coming up the floor, and I see Sid Wilson coming, and I go, "Oh, here comes Sid's block." And, like, he just goes up and sends it to the other end of the court off the backboard. And just like, okay, well, there's his block for the game. Like, take him out because he's not going to do anything else at this point. It was just, like, perfect that the Sid Wilson block happened in that moment. And then it flips the script. That was that was just awesome because besides, like, a huge dunk over someone, I don't think anything fires up the crowd quite like just a huge rejection like that it's just such a satisfying especially happening right it's just great because not only is it like a good play for UConn it just totally humiliates the other team at the same time it was just such a perfect moment to be in the student section and then like you said it it ignited the team from there so yeah that was that was the like number one thing when you mentioned doing this from that game that I remembered was Sid Wilson just totally stuffed a dude from behind. It was great. Yeah, I remember. So I, I knew that that happened during the game, but when, I couldn't remember exactly when. So when I was rewatching it, there was a point, I think it was obviously right right before, like he's coming over half court and the guy's got the ball. I'm like, oh, oh, that's right. This is when it happens. And then he just <laughs> like, just absolutely just devours his soul. And uh <laughs> Yeah, Sid, Sid Sid was such a wild card. I mean, it was not just a dunk in the the blocks, but he. I also remember he had like a buzzer beater three to force overtime in one of the games they lost earlier in the year. And I just remember just being like, "Where the hell did that come from?" Like, you know, definitely he was definitely like the Charlie Kelly of the UConn uh, program the last couple of years. You never really were quite sure what you were going to get out of him, but every once in a while, just yeah, <laughs> something crazy. Um, shout out to Sid, Sid Wilson. Hope he, you know, hope wherever he lands, he does well. Um, 
Yeah. So anyway, um, needless to say, that kind of leads into kind of the Yukon's big, uh, big move at the end. And this is kind of where Christian Vital really starts to take over. You know, he has a two that gives Yukon the lead a couple moments later. He has two steals in pretty quick succession. One of them leads to a book night two in transition. Another one he takes to himself. Zach, he's a seven nothing run. Then Jero fouls out. So, you know, Yukon got to catch a big break there. Vitell, another basket, makes it a 9 nothing run. Houston hasn't scored in over four minutes again. You have that Gaffney, Jalen Gaffney has this crazy reverse layup. Um, oh, yeah. And then, uh, you know, I think Houston ends the run after that. But then Vitell hits another one. Book Knight has this crazy coast-to-coast two. 15-2 run. And then, yeah, you all of a sudden, it's 66-55 to with uh, not, I think, I, I think it was uh, under two minutes left at that point. And for the last, like, you know, 10 minutes of the game, UConn is just sort of, done what they did earlier except they did it for longer and really kind of put the game away i have it in my my notes it says you know gilbert to whaley dunk um after hinton, hinton had that three to make things interesting with about a minute left and then he has the the dunk and i wrote that's a wrap of course it wasn't because then they end up houston ends up scoring like three more threes but you know at that point like you knew at that point there's no way yukon was gonna lose yeah that dunk uh was also like one of the things I remembered uh, without looking anything up from this game where it was like, all right, someone had a big dunk at the end that ended it. Um, you mentioned those threes. Was this the game where the Houston dude was just like launching up threes at the end and he made like every single one or was that a different game? No, no, that was, well, actually it might've been both of them, but it was definitely this one too. Cause he, uh, so let me just kind of run through the, the sequence. So with, uh, with one minute and 17, uh, Hinton makes a three that makes it 66 to 60. Then uh, Gilbert and beats the press and hits Whaley for the dunk. Eight-point game, 105 left. Hinton with another three. So six-point game again. Vitell, and then this is the part. So basically the rest of the way now, Christian Vitell is just knocking every single free throw down. And uh, I mean, I want to talk about that in more detail. But, you know, Vitell two for two. Grimes uh, hits a basket. Vitell two for two. Grimes for three. Hinton fouls out, Vitell two for two, Grimes for three again. <laughs> so now it's 75, 71, 23 seconds left. Vitell two for two, and finally, finally Grimes misses a three, and then that's a wrap. Um, but yeah, it was like, I remember watching, I was getting so annoyed because every time they hit a three, I'm just like, <laughs> bro, I just want to celebrate. They're going to win, and this freaking team won't go away. Like, it was so aggravating. But it also just showcased, just, you know, this was Christian Vitell's moment to shine. He literally just was no sweat whatsoever, knocks down eight free throws in a row. And, you know, in a past, you know, a past version of Christian Vitale in an earlier season, maybe he doesn't make all of them and maybe we have real problems. And this is a tragic game instead of, you know, a great one. Um, But, you know, despite Houston's literal best efforts, like they literally couldn't have done any more to try to pull this one out of their ass. You know, Christian, um, you know, he finishes with 26 points and all eight of his free throws were in this final minute. So, you know, it was really his moment to shine. Um, and then, yeah, then, you know, they win and then, you know, it's just like, wow, here we go. You know, they, you know, Vital has that kind of moment to address the fans. Um, you know, he, you know, I think there was a whole thing too. I, re- I recall some guys were trying to make the force a court storming too. Do you recall sort of what the deal was with that? Oh God, I totally, like, I have pushed that out of my brain. Yeah, um, it was dudes from Barstool, I, I'm not up to date on Barstool, but 
they like go around like trying to get people to storm the court. So they like came in midway through the first half and they were sitting on the far side of the um on of the student section in like the upper levels. And then I think at halftime they came over in, and someone had saved some seats in the student section. So they were there when I think it was, I don't know if it was security or UConn ops came over and told them they had to leave because they weren't UConn students and they didn't want to leave. And then they eventually got dragged out by the police. And that was that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I was paying more attention to the game than that. And they were, I like, if you're facing the court, I was on the left side of the students section, I think like four rows up maybe. And they were, on the right side, like first row. So I couldn't even really see that well. So I don't know. I was more focused on the game than anything. Also based on the fact that I've completely forgotten that it happened. Yeah. Well, I think so. I, I, I've kind of mixed feelings about that whole thing because one, the, what we got with you know Christian Vitale's you know sniper out mic drop when he addressed the crowd was really, really cool. And it was really a nice emotional moment for him. Um, you know, on the flip side, you know, UConn basketball, I, I can only recall a handful of occasions where UConn fans have rushed to court. There was the Texas game in 2010, and uh, there was the NIT championship at Madison Square Garden, which in retrospect is really one of the most insane things ever that that actually happened. Uh, there may have been others along the way. I can't recall. But if you actually think about it, this if there was a moment where UConn fans could have been justified in storming the court, this really probably would have been it. Because, like, you guys have just been, you know, down for so long and then you get this epic win like this. It would have been something. But obviously, I mean, I don't know. It would have been better if it had, you know, if, if the fans had just done it themselves, not, you know, been kind of prompted to by some guys from Barstool or whatever. Um, but you know what, you know, obviously whatever, you know, whatever, how, however things played out, you know, Christian getting that moment to kind of address the crowd and do his thing was really cool. Um, you know, it's a shame that that kind of turned out to be sort of the, the big, uh, you know, a rap, like Christian could have gone down to be like Kemba or Shabazz if he led them on a huge run. We'll just never know, but at least he had that. Um, you know, I don't know. I guess just like, you know, do you, do you, what, what was kind of the vibe in the student section after, you know, once he, once he spoke. Um, I just like remember wanting to storm the court and hug him. Yeah, mostly. Like, I I didn't actually want the students to storm the court just because I felt it would have been kind of inauthentic. But just also that like, like, come on. Like, at the end of the day, we're still UConn, and I've seen just as much bad basketball as anyone else in that student section. But. It's the number 21 team in the country. I don't really want to give the AAC satisfaction of UConn, who we spent our whole time in the AAC saying that we're better than the rest of the conference, and then we storm the court after beating Houston. Like, I just didn't think it was appropriate. I think beating, like, a number one team on the court, that's, like, that's worth doing. But I, I just thought it wouldn't have been a great look for UConn and not a great look leaving the AAC, but... Yeah, that Christian speaking was special because obviously it doesn't happen a ton where the players can speak to the fans after the game and even less so when it's a player that kind of has the admiration of the entire UConn fan base the way CV does. So I think we were all just really happy for him that he had this moment to go out with and that it was a moment that, like you said, with those free throws, it was on his shoulders to win the game and he just handled it calmly and did what he needed to do. So it was just such a great 
way honestly for him to go out and like there was no AAC tournament so the likelihood was that CV's career was going to end in a loss and it would have been just those heartbreaking moments where he's on the like press podium tears in his eyes saying how he wished he could have just kept playing and instead you don't get the chance to compete to have that moment but like the way things ended I don't think it could have gone much better than um than that with him going out in that fashion at Gamble Pavilion yeah absolutely and you know and, and to be fair like you know, I, what your your point about the not wanting to give the American Conference that satisfaction is a great one. So I'll I'll grant you that. Um, you know, it is funny. This this technically wasn't his last game. They do play one more game at Tulane, but like you know, for all intents and purposes, this was it. Like this was kind of a you know this sort of set the tone. And I guess them beating Tulane, I guess doesn't spoil the happy ending because now we look back and say, okay, they finished with uh you know eight wins and ten out of ten. You know, eight out of their last ten games they won. Yeah, they won their last five in a row. And look, they were going to play Tulane again in the conference tournament. So they didn't win 20 games, but, you know, we we know they were they would have won 20 games. So, you know, kind of to me, this kind of almost kind of has a 2013 kind of vibe where, you know, that team also didn't get a chance to play in the postseason. And, you know, they end up, you know, winning their last game against Providence. And, you know, it's just like, OK, like this was a good year. Like they, they you know, obviously would have been nicer to have it last a little bit longer, but you know, where obviously that team, you know, the follow up was a national championship. So I don't know if that's going to be the expectation this coming year, obviously, you know, well, who the heck knows what's going to happen. But, you know, it definitely was like a good ending to a year that feels like it's only just the beginning of what could potentially be a really fun chapter. Um, so, you know, this was obviously one of the last games that we've had with UConn. So it wasn't that long ago. But was there anything that stood out to you when you rewatched the game? Well, yeah, you beat me to that uh, 2013 comparison. I remember, like, at the end of the game when, like, right as the buzzer sounding, just thinking, like, this feels a lot like that Providence game from 2013 where everyone kind of knows this is it. And obviously we didn't know that was going to be the second-to-last game of the season because of coronavirus. But it did just have a very, like, comfortable sense of finality. Like, this is it. Um, This is a great way to go out. It was kind of a um, typical performance of the team. Like in 2013, that game went to overtime, and they went to overtime a million times that year. And then this year, it was CV doing it at the end and winning the game, which was appropriate. So, yeah, it it very much had that vibe. Um, I think just rewatching it um, and going through the highlights and stuff, it was just like. I, it was just kind of bringing back all the memories because I, when I go to games as a fan, I honestly don't recall the game super well, even though I'm watching the whole game and I'm into the game. I just never like remember the game super well unless I go back and I'm like, oh yeah, this thing happened. So I think it was just bringing back such great memories of the night and that was back in the normal times. So I think it was nice going back to that and just kind of reminiscing on being a student and just the experience of going to Gamble at 530 or I probably showed up earlier for that game, but, and just getting to hang out and then remembering all the big moments. And like, I remember the book night, um, Euro step that you mentioned earlier, like 
my friend that I went with would always do this like dance where he would like mimic the Euro step, like, but in his seat. And once book night did the Euro step, I was like, ah, oh, that's right. Paul did the Euro step after that. And the like Sid Wilson block, it's like, Oh, yep. This is where Sid Wilson blocks it. I did the same thing when it was coming up and then the whaley dunk. And, um, I totally forgot about the threes and, free throws at the end where it's like all right dude can you just miss and like let us celebrate here like you're just prolonging the inevitable but um yeah it was just it was just awesome to watch it again and relive that because i don't know if i don't know if there's a better game that i could have hoped to go out for as a student even with everything that happened the last four years and i do remember kind of hoping during that game like i don't want them to host an NIT game because this is just such a perfect ending. And I feel like it would just kind of spoil that if we get some like crappy NIT game where who knows how many people even show up to gamble. And like UConn has a pretty strong history in 1988 side of just not even doing anything in the NIT, just flopping in the first or second round. So yes, they do. I was, (laughs) (laughs) I was just, very happy that that was the ending that we got. And I mean, like as bad as my, my general college ending was, it is very interesting that a lot of the sports teams that I watched the most, like men's basketball, women's basketball, and men's soccer, all had like very fitting endings. Like the men's bas- soccer team was horrible. And I was um, one of the heads of the goal patrol and all the games were in Hartford. So we barely got anyone there, but senior night was just that core group of friends that I had. And, the team was terrible all year, but they killed whoever it was in senior night. I think it was Tulsa. And like all the seniors got into the game who we had gotten to know well. And then after the game, we were like high-fiving all the dudes behind the bench. And um, we were keeping track of another game because if like UCF won, that meant UConn got into the conference tournament. And like while we were all standing there kind of milling around, UCF won and we were like oh my god UCF won so then like the whole team started celebrating right there and then women's basketball had a very up and down year but they won the conference tournament and that was just a very fun atmosphere after the game and just a really nice way for them to go out even though they would have preferred a national championship and then the men with Houston too it was just such a great such a great way for it to all wrap up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I so when I was rewatching it, one thing that struck me that it actually doesn't have much to do with the game itself, but like, so since I started this podcast, I think the most recent game I've done an episode on was from 2014. And I, I was struck by how much better the like picture and audio quality is like six years later, you know, 2014 wasn't that long ago. And, you know, CBS, uh, the CBS sports broadcast was, you know, was fine. Like I, I have no real opinion on it either way, but like, you know, the, the better cameras that they have access to now, the better mics, like Gamble looked and sounded awesome. And I just remember like, you know, being like, you know, especially like, you know, one of the recent episodes that it was like the 1988 NIT championship. So like, it's like night and day. So you know, to rewatch this game, I was like, oh, my God, like, you know, Gamble, like, the, you know, the roof looks better. Obviously, they fixed it up like oh the lights, the lighting situations. It looks a little bit weird. Like they're trying to do it like like a like a what do you call it? like stage lighting. So like the crowd yeah. is all dark and I'm still kind of uh, trying to hit or miss on that. But, you know, just like 
oh man, this like this game looks and sounds awesome. And it just got me so excited because I remember, you know, obviously right before everything got shut down, I got to watch a little bit of the Big East tournament and I realized that they play the old NBC on and the NBA on NBC theme is the, the Big East like basketball theme now. And, you know, just between rewatching the game and remembering that, it's got me so hyped up for next year or whenever the next time UConn basketball plays. Like, you know, it's it's going to be so much different and it's going to be so much better. And I'm just looking forward to, I don't know, being able to kind of soak it all in. You know, it's been a long couple of years. So, you know, just, yeah. it, it struck me just like, wow, it really has been like six years almost since like there's been a game worth doing an episode on. Like, I'm trying to think like, you know, what what episodes are podcasts worthy or what games are podcast worthy recently? And it's like the Jalen Adams game is like really the only one I can think of that's like, oh, yeah, well, I definitely eventually have to do an episode on that. So, yeah, I don't know. That was just kind of. You know, my perspective is a little different, obviously, because I've been, you know, uh, out in the real world for a little while. But yeah. So, um, yeah. So anyway, we've kind of talked about the best sequences. You know, there's the 16 to nothing run, Book Knight's four point play, the the big run at the end and Vital's free throws. Um, any in particular kind of stood out to you as kind of the moment you're going to definitely remember, you know, when, you know, years down the road? I think it's probably the Whaley dunk, just because, as you mentioned, it's it was like the cherry on top that like, all right, this is it. Like it reminded me of that Phil Nolan dunk against Michigan state in 2014, (laughs) like throw the ball up to the big and he just dunks it. And the whole home crowd goes insane. It, it had a lot of, uh, what's the word ties to, to that play and was just such like a great, like crowning moment that, um, it was just, really really fun to be a part of and like as i said i don't remember the games super well like i couldn't really tell you what happened in the cincinnati game that jaron cumberland missed four shots at the end besides the fact that jaron cumberland missed four shots at the end but that dunk stood out in my mind where yeah when i'm talking with my friends at a college reunion 25 years from now like it's going to be like oh dude that houston game and whaley's dunk that was awesome oh absolutely yeah i think that's probably the one we'll remember i think for me it's it's actually not the game but it's christian vital's speech at the end just like yeah that was i mean sniper out man that's the that's a what a mic drop you know that's kind of the you know it's it's a shame he didn't get a chance to write a better ending for himself but the one he got you know is certainly better than the the chapters that came before um yeah so you know best stats uh you know so christian he leads all the all scorers with 26 points you know eight for eight for three throws james Booknight, 17 points six uh, for seven free throws you know uh, a bunch of other guys really contributed too uh this is one that struck me so uconn got to the line 33 times they went 25 for 33 houston was 10 for 10 so like they made all their shots but that was that's was surprising to me because Houston had the reputation of being the bigger, physic, more physical team, and yet UConn was really the one who was like really taking it to them throughout. Um, you know, I don't know. Do you do you do you recall just like during the game, just like thinking like like UConn's at the line like every like every other possession? Um, I don't really remember that. Like thirty three sounds like a lot, and the fact that Vital only shot eight at the end, um, that is surprising. I. I feel like this UConn team was actually pretty good at getting to the line, right? So it probably just wasn't anything out of the ordinary that really made me um, notice. But I do remember Houston just wouldn't miss a free throw. Like, 
obviously you do everything you do in the student section and it's like all right come on just miss one like just give us that let us like have a little fun with that no they didn't even miss one let us do that oh no well here's well they missed uh, some other shots so this is something that i thought was pretty uh, pretty remarkable yukon shoots 50 percent from the game they go 24 for 48 houston they make 26 shots they only shoot 36 percent from the game because they had a lead in offensive rebounds of 16 to 4. And as a result, they attempted 71 shots. Oh my God. Like, how on earth did UConn win this game when that is like, they literally shot, like, what's, geez, like, that's 23, 23 more shots. They almost attempted as many, sh- like, they, UConn made 24 shots in the game. Houston attempted missed uh, basically they attempted almost that many more shots than UConn like I can't I've I don't know if I've ever seen that before isn't that ridiculous yeah that's (laughs) I I do remember getting annoyed that they couldn't grab a single freaking rebound ever I didn't 71 that is so many shots holy crap so (laughs) Oh, that blows! That absolutely blows my mind. Yeah, how did UConn win that? How did not only UConn win that game? How did we feel comfortable the entire time that they were gonna win that game? It, it really like, felt like they were in full control. And then I saw that stat. I was like, "There's no way they they attempted 71 shots. Like, what what on earth is going on here?" Um, yeah, I mean, I think a big key is like Houston also only went nine for 26 from three. And, um, you know, Marcus Sasser, is, he was real. he had a really tough game. He was 0 for 7 from 3 and 1 for 12 from the field. So, you know, I guess, oh my God, he only had two points too. <laughs> so, I mean, that's probably a big part of it. You know, they had one, one guy in particular who just was absolutely cold as ice. But yeah, I mean, that's, you know, geez, I don't even know what to say about it. I just feel like compelled to point that out just because, I've, I've done, you know, every episode I try to look at the stats and that's the first time I ever saw a number like that and was just straight up just like, like that, that's impossible. Like, how could that possibly be the case? I mean, it does kind of make sense because at that point, UConn's only bigs were Whaley and Carlton, right? And at that point, I think Carlton's confidence had pretty much been shot. So really, Whaley was your only like solid big in there and Christian Vital was the team's leading rebounder. So, I mean, like... It's not super surprising that they got out-rebounded. I just didn't know it was that badly and that Houston took that many shots. But, wow. Yeah. When did Houston shoot from three? Did you mention that? Because I thought I remembered Houston bricking a lot from three. They, yeah, they did. So they go nine for 26. Uh, so they shoot okay, 34% yeah. from three. Which, you know, I guess like, you know, and, and, and by the way, that that's bearing in mind that they also made like four in the last like minute and a half. So it was actually probably the percentage was way worse than that. But then like, you know, 34% from three is like, I don't know, like that's like below average, but like maybe not terrible. So but shooting 36% from the game on 71 shots is that's that's definitely not what you want. Um yeah, by the way, Carlton only played 15 minutes, so it was really mostly a four-guard lineup type of deal. And, you know, with Booknight, I guess, playing the three or the four and, you know, Whaley kind of as the main big for most of the game. Um, yeah, so, you know, kind of interesting stat-wise. Uh, broadcast, uh, as far as the broadcast goes, uh, Tom McCarthy and Bob Wenzel were the commentators. Uh, I honestly had no opinion on the broadcast. I mean, usually it's either it's, like, really, really good or it's, like, you know, one of those 1980s broadcasts that's like melting my brain. 
this was just kind of whatever. Did you have any thoughts on CBS Sports' broadcast? No, I'm not usually like a big um, like announcer critic. Like I, unless they're like being really excessive and annoying, like uh, uh, those two guys on ESPN used to be. I can't think of their names. Um, oh crap, this is gonna bother me. The guys who did the Jalen Adams shot one. Those two guys drove me nuts. Um, maybe it'll come to me, but I yeah, the announcers are usually pretty much like just a net neutral in my head. I'm not, I never really notice it unless they're really going over the top with something or they won't shut up about like one thing or another, but I'm mostly just paying attention to the game. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, not really a lot to say on this one there. Commentating was fine. You know, there were some weird audio issues at the start, but otherwise it was pretty much your standard CBS sports. Um, so yeah. So, you know, obviously I usually ask at the end, uh, you know, who's the top dog. I think there's a very clear answer here. So, you know, let's just, you know, give me, give me one more nice take on Christian Vital and just, you know, what, what he meant to this team, this, this game and this season. Yeah. I think he was just like the ultimate UConn player that you want. Like, I think UConn fans like to think of UConn as perpetually the underdog, just being from stores, not being a traditional power. And I think Vital kind of embodies that. He's a New York guy, so he's local and he's easy to root for. Uh, The progression that he had throughout his career was awesome because, like you said, he was really the best player out of his class from the start, but he was also hard-headed and could be a little arrogant and take some dumb shots early in his career. And even as a junior, he butted heads with Hurley and, drove him nuts often and then they had that big talk over the offseason and he came back just such a different player and as such a great leader and he was just such a good player where he really never hurt the team as a senior where he did a pretty good amount earlier in his career like a lot of times early in his career all the good that you get from cv he kind of outweighed with doing some bad stuff too but i think it i don't know if it was his best performance this game but it was definitely like his most um just the performance that summed up who he was as a player by the end the best just really good from three made all his free throws led the team refused to let the team down i just from the start of his freshman year he became one of my favorite players and now i really think he's even though he wasn't able to have the same success as guys like Kemba or Shabazz, I don't think that was necessarily his fault because obviously the surrounding cast wasn't there. But if if he was on a better team, he absolutely would have helped them get to a Final Four or a national championship because he was just one of those type of guys. And I think it's just so disappointing that he never got a chance to play in the Big East. And if any player should get a fifth year uh, hardship like waiver because their team was so bad and they deserved better. And I mean, come on, how cruel is it that Christian Vital doesn't get to play in the big East and doesn't get to play at Madison square garden. Like that dude is just such an old school player that would have thrived in the old big East and the new big East. Like, uh, he, he deserves so much better than what he got. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, if nothing else, you know, like we said, you know, he, 
he he's going to be remembered as like a great UConn player for better, you know, for better or worse, I guess, like, you know, for however, whatever his legacy could have been, it's ultimately going to be a good one. I think he's, he's going to be the guy who helped bring, who helped bring UConn back. And then whatever happens next is going to like, you know, he'll, he'll, he, he won't be a part of it, but he'll have some credit for it. So, um, you know, obviously now, like, you know, looking ahead, you know, UConn is back in the Big East. Um, you know, if we play basketball this year, it's going to be, you know, a whole new, it's basically a whole new ball game. This year, this upcoming roster is fascinating because it's almost exactly the opposite of this one, where by the end you would be, it would eight, you had eight players. You would, you know, pretty much no depth and kind of just getting the best from everybody you could and just, you know, that you had to rely on what you had. Whereas now I have no idea who this is going to be in the starting lineup just because there's so many options and, you know, there's so many guys you can kind of imagine, well, things could play out this way and maybe it's that guy and maybe things could play out this way and it's this guy. So I guess just before we wrap this up, what are your thoughts on next year? You know, and we'll just put the caveat, we don't know if there's going to be a season, but if there is, you know, what do you what do you think about this coming year's team? And, uh, you know, what do you what are some versions of the starting lineup that you can imagine, uh, depending on how things go? Yeah, it's going to be really, really exciting because you've got what should be a really good team going into the Big East. So it's going to be they're going to be competitive from the start, which I think is all you can ask for. Like if UConn was joining the Big East like two years ago and Kevin Ollie's last year, I don't think the excitement would be what it is because you know they're going to get into the conference and then just get smoked every night. But this team can absolutely compete for the Big East title, I think. And yeah, the lineups are going to be super interesting because I think it's pretty clear that RJ Cole's locked in to be the starting point guard. But the progress that a guy like Jalen Gaffney made throughout last season, I mean, he was by far the most overmatched player on the court every time he stepped on at the beginning of the season. And then by the end, he was just real—he was starting over Alteric, right? And he was doing well doing that. He had progressed so much, and he was a really nice player. So I think maybe he'll just keep coming off the bench just because you've got RJ, and um, he still might get a lot of minutes. But um, I think his development's going to be exciting. I think, obviously, Book Knight's going to be in the starting lineup. And just I can't wait to see the jump he makes because – he was a stud from when he finally came off his suspension, but he also just progressed as the season went on. And that's the thing that I always come back to when I talk about Hurley and his team is that under Ali, like the guys just didn't develop and like CV was not much different of a player as a junior, as he was as a freshman. And Jalen Adams really didn't develop a whole lot when he was here, but like, you can see just the transformation that some of these guys make within a single season, whether it be Whaley, as we talked about earlier, Carlton, the jump he made from the beginning of his sophomore year to the end, Jalen Gaffney, uh, Brendan Adams uh, from freshman to sophomore year, didn't do anything as a freshman, was a really nice role player as a sophomore. So I think that's the really exciting thing is you have this roster and you can kind of project what you think they might be, but the odds are with Hurley and his staff that they're going to be a much, much better team by the end of the season. So uh, having book night, Hurley's been very high on Andre Jackson saying he can make the same type of impact that book night did as a freshman. Then Carlton's lost a lot of weight. I'm not um, going to give up on him not being an impact player. Obviously Whaley 
see, hopefully he can carry that momentum. Then you've got Richie Springs coming off a red shirt and Javante Brown Ferguson. You can always use a seven footer on your team, especially if you have a good coaching staff that can mold them. I mean, there's just so many pieces on this team and so much talent that like there's bound to be five really good players. And then if last year's any indication, it's probably going to be a pretty deep team too. And Hurley's not afraid to use his subs. So if there's not a huge drop off from that starting five to the next seven, I think that's just as I don't think there's much more you could ask for as uh, as for Hurley or just watching the games because someone's having a bad night, you have someone there that can replace him, and someone's having a good night, you have a bunch of guys that can help him continue playing well. So I'm really really excited. I'm not personally not super optimistic that we're gonna start the season on time or even have anything in the fall semester. But I think at the very least, we'll see some form of UConn basketball in this upcoming season. Yeah. So I, I'm going to give you kind of what I think of two possible scenarios for starting a lineup. And I'm really stoked about both of them, to be honest. So what I think you could have the safe early season, we're just going to kind of see how things go kind of lineup. And that's where you have, you have Cole and book Knight, who are, are locks, obviously. I think Gaffney starts early and then probably Whaley and Carlton. And that's more or less kind of like a similar version of what we had at the end of last year, which we know is a pretty good team. And if things play out yeah. well and people develop and the freshmen are as good as we think they are, I could see a scenario where maybe at the end of the season, the lineup might look something more like, uh, you know, Cole and Book Knight with uh, Andre Jackson in at the three, uh, a cook or, you know, yeah, we'll just say a cook at the four, and then either Sonogo or uh, Javante Brown Ferguson at the five. And like, cool. could you imagine like, you know, at the end of the season, if that's the lineup, and it would be the lineup for a reason, so that presumes that Sonogo and JBF are good. Like, you know, the first team I just gave you is a good team. The second team I just gave you is potentially like a Big East championship contender, and maybe even more. Like that yeah. could that could be. Oh man, it's getting me excited just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't even mentioned Tyler Polly, who's supposed to be ready for the start of the year, and I think he's. I really like his game to begin with, and I think he was really starting to discover how he can impact games before you got hurt but if Tyler Polly's coming off the bench for you then you've got a really really good team because that's an awesome shooting threat off the bench a great just a generally great offensive threat coming off the bench that is going to be tough to defend especially if he's healthy by the start of the year like yeah I think I, like you said, I think it's more exciting to think about what the starting lineup is, not by how good the starting lineup is, but just what those players being in the starting lineup means and then who you have coming off the bench because they definitely have five really good players that are going to be out on the court at the beginning of the game. But, they're, I mean, it's not just going to be those five that make the team go. I think it's going to be at least a 10-deep rotation, if not even all 12, 13 players getting in. So, yeah, I just I don't think there's an unexciting lineup combination possible. Yeah, absolutely. I and, mean, yeah, Pauly, like, his last game before he got hurt was, was like, his best game ever, too. So, if, like, if that yeah. version of Tyler Pauly shows up, then, God, I mean, <laughs> that's, like, that's, like, taking things to a whole new level. Oh man, well if we could go on and on and on about that, but uh, I think we've I think we've covered enough ground. So you know, Dan, thanks so much for coming on. I guess uh, before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to plug or any anything you'd like to shout out? 
Uh, sure. Follow me on Twitter at Daniel V. Connolly, C-O-N-N-O-L-L-Y, because people don't like to spell that right. And then uh, just last week launched a women's UConn Women's Basketball newsletter, the UConn Women's Basketball Weekly. So subscribe to that, UConn WW. Nope. UConn WBB Weekly Substack.com. Um, that goes out every Thursday. Uh, yeah. All right. Good stuff. Yeah. No, definitely uh, get, subscribe to that and uh, read all Dan's stuff. Uh, you know, you've been doing a great job. Uh, you know, like I said, you deserved so much better. But, you know, obviously, the, the nice thing about UConn basketball is that just because you're graduated doesn't mean that you're, you know, kicked out of the family. So hopefully uh, these next couple of years will be fun for all of us. Yeah, definitely. I, I appreciate it. But I'm, I just can't wait until basketball comes back and i don't know the last time i was i've been like actively excited i've had a legit reason to be actively excited for it coming back oh absolutely and you know here's here's one thing i I heard about recently i mean the timing of yukon going back to the big east from like a coronavirus standpoint is really like it couldn't have worked out better because now i hear reports like oh well you know what maybe you maybe what the big east will do instead is instead of doing a 20 game conference schedule, maybe they'll do a 28 game conference schedule. And then, then I'm just like, like sign me up. Let's go like, you know, play like four games against Providence, play four games against St. John's and bang, there you go. (laughs) It's like so much better than any games against East Carolina and Tulsa. Oh my God. Imagine how horrible that would be if we had to play the AAC teams four times. And instead, no, well, they wouldn't play. No, they wouldn't because they're too far away. So instead their entire schedule would probably be against, you know, URI and, you know, UNH and BC. And yeah, they probably would play Providence a bunch in that case, but maybe who knows that it would be the difference between what they, the, the worst case scenario of like only playing big East games versus, you know, got playing God knows who in the ACC the AAC rather. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> You're telling us that we can only play the teams that we want to. Can we do this every year? <laughs> yeah, I know. Don't, don't tempt me with a good time. <laughs> All right. All right, man. Well, Hey, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. And, uh, yeah, you know the drill. Um, you know, follow me on Twitter at Max Cerullo, M-A-C-C-E-R-U-L-L-O. DMs are open. Email me at yesuconpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, five-star reviews. Um, we still want them. We've got to try to work that algorithm and show up higher in the search engine. So you know the drill. Um, yeah, anyway, good stuff, guys. Thanks so much. I'll see you all later.